0: This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu. So welcome to the first of Chicago's Best Ideas. This was a uh, series uh, that we started during the law school's centennial, which now seems like 100 years ago, but it wasn't quite 100 years ago. And uh, the basic idea then was to have, like, a special series of lunches. Back then, uh, the law school did not provide, like, free lunch every day from Ty 55 or whatever it is now. Potbellies hadn't even opened yet. So the idea that you would come and get served lunch uh, was kind of nice. That guaranteed that people would come. And then uh, it began with, uh, you know, what's going on in law? Like, what's the Coase theorem? What's this? What's that? And one by one, um, maybe three, four, five, six a year, we did these Chicago's Best Ideas. And different faculty members would introduce the best ideas. The problem is we've kind of run out of all those uh, best ideas. And the program is now many years old. And so somebody like me is saying, I, I like Chicago's Best Ideas. It's one of my favorite things, like sort of a group intellectual experience and something to talk about. But, uh, you know, how many best ideas can one school have? Best means like one. So even if it's Chicago's, you know, not bad, better ideas, uh, maybe we've run through those too. Uh, But uh, I'm determined. Uh, So I'm trying to tie this into some of the best ideas that this law school has produced in in the past, but also to convey some ideas of where law might be going in the future. So it's not meant to be a small talk. It's not about some little thing in law with a detail. It's meant to be like, you know, about as big think as law can get. You know, it's not about are there multiverses out there, and, you know, do we really exist? It's not nothing big. If you like that stuff, you know, go across the midway and do that. But here, a big idea is something like, you know, how does law work? How are our classes related to one another? What do they have to do with the way the legal system works? And that's kind of what this talk uh, is about. So as you might know from the title or the little uh, blurb, uh, the basic idea of my talk is to try to point out that there are really two things going on in an enormous part of law. Now, I don't really mean, when I say, how does law work, I don't really mean all of law. I mean, law works by throwing people in jail. Law works by, if, you know, doesn't like what you say, it might arrest you. Or not. Or uses the First Amendment. I mean, I realize law has many, many tools. But there are large areas of law, almost everything we associate with modern social problems, of the crowded planet kind, you know, pollution and tax problems and, you know, even redistribution and almost everything that goes wrong, education, lots and lots of things. Uh, My theme is that really law has two big ways of going about it, two big ways. They're typified in a way by property law, tort law. But there's also a lot of corporate law and constitutional law in there. My examples are mostly going to be from tort law and property law, because they'll be generally accessible uh, to anybody that's been out on a highway or lived in a building or something of the sort. So let me show you what I mean by these two ways that law works. I call them concentration and distribution, but I, don't, I feel like there should be better words for them, but I haven't really uh, figured them out yet. So first I'm going to introduce them, then I'm going to give some examples, and then I'm going to make some predictions about the future. They won't be big predictions, but you'll, you'll get the idea. Uh, and I should warn you that I don't mean, uh, those of you who have had me in class already know this about ideas in law that I like, uh, I don't mean, when I say how law works, I don't necessarily mean that it's a good thing. Uh, in fact, I will occasionally hint that some of these strategies that law is using and the one that I think law is going to use more and more in the future might not be a good thing at all. It might actually, you could sell it as a really good thing. Wow, look how law works. Isn't it great? Aren't I proud to be a lawyer? But actually what's going on is the very same thing could be explained by uh, interest group pressure. Ooh, there are these well-organized people out there that have figured out how to get law to do what they want and make them rich. And that'll be a perfectly good alternative explanation for what's going on. So I'm not, in fact, that's what I did my two Chicago best ideas ago about. But I'm not doing that again. That's more about the evolution of law and how we know when it's good or bad. Uh, That's not what I'm going to do today. But I'll hint at that occasionally, just to remind you that I'm not saying that all of this uh, is good. So here are the two basic ideas. Let's start with tort law, and then we'll do it in more detail. The basic observation is something like this. Think about the way tort law works, whether or not you're an upper L or a 1L. Uh, Think about it this way. There are two things going on in law. Sometimes the evolution of law has been towards distribution. By distribution, I mean law sees a problem, and then law says, well, if we find eight people that polluted the river, let's make them each pay a little bit. Either we'll have some agency assign Superfund liability, or we'll find some jury and we'll send them into another room and we'll make up some jury instructions that are incomprehensible. But they'll have to come back and they'll say, oh, you pay 8%, you pay 22%. They'll come up with something. Uh, it, It turns out it won't really matter very much what they come up with. Almost anything they do will work for reasons you either know or will see shortly. And then, with everybody having a little bit of responsibility, maybe in proportion to what they should have done, maybe not, Actually, that might encourage a kind of teamwork. You know, sometimes the best way to, like, clean up a river might be everybody to pollute a little less. That seems kind of obvious. So one way to promote that kind of clean river by teamwork would be to say to everybody, look, if the river's dirty at the end of the year and you're doing business as usual, you're going to pay some fraction of the cleanup costs. And maybe that'll work to make everybody behave better. That's more or less how traffic works in the United States. When you think about it, if you're in an accident... You know, there'll be some judgment by somebody about what you did wrong, what I did wrong, what the pedestrian did wrong. And you know, the chances are we all did something wrong. And then, I'll pay a little, you'll pay a little, and then, then in turn, when we learn to drive, our parents will tell us, be a defensive driver, be careful. And what they're really saying is, you're going to cost me if you're not. And it'll be expensive. And so, law sprinkles its thing. It distributes liability around. Distribution is the word I want to use but you could say sprinkling in your mind if you want. And through that, it hopes we'll behave well. So that's strategy number one, the distribution strategy. At the very same time, in the very same area of law, oh, and this did not exist 100 years ago. This is an evolution of law invention of the idea of, oh, instead of figuring out who did something wrong, blame everybody, distribute it around, unless people can really convince you that they were perfectly well behaved. That's a strategy law evolved towards. Again, in tort law, that's most obvious with comparative negligence. We have no example of comparative negligence, say, in the United States before the 1920s, and now every state uses comparative negligence. And as you'll see in a few moments, I think that's symptomatic of changes in law around the world in general, not only in torts. Okay, but at the very same time, identical years, in the very same part of law, Law came up with another strategy, which we could call something like the least cost avoider strategy, though it's not a term I really like. I want to call it the concentration strategy. That is, to emphasize that it's the opposite of distribution. Concentration means you think something went wrong, you don't really know who did it, or you think maybe a lot of people contributed to the thing going wrong. Like products liability. You know, why are those airbags on some Hondas exploding? You know, there are really a lot of things that are going wrong. The dealer, maybe the driver, maybe Honda should have inspected the maker better, certainly the maker. Law is very likely to pick a kind of concentration strategy. It's going to pick one party, probably Honda, and say to Honda, look, it's a very complicated world, but basically we're going to hold you responsible. You're going to pay for all the cars that go wrong and certainly all the people who die in those cars. And because we're going to focus all that liability on you, you, you probably did nothing wrong. You've no, you wouldn't even know an airbag if it hit you in the face. <laughs> Joke. Um, but you know who you bought airbags from. You know how dealers maintain them. You know how the habits of people who drive. So you are supposed to use your wisdom and your contractual connections to try to solve the problem. So concentration strategy, find one party that seems well positioned to make the world a better place find that party responsible, throw all the responsibility on that party, even if that party did nothing wrong sometimes, and figure that knowing they'll be held responsible, they will outsource, I think is the way to think. Sometimes they'll solve the problem themselves, but usually they'll outsource, they'll enter contracts, they'll figure things out, they'll break up with some vendors and go to others and all that. So notice this side by side, they're really opposites of one another, right? One is that laws sometimes think concentrate your remedy, And law sometimes, meaning at other times, thinks, no, no, distribute your remedy. So part of the mystery is, well, how does law exactly decide whether to concentrate or distribute? And is this true everywhere in law? And are there any patterns to how it works? But the first message is I want you to think about law from now on as, oh, a law is always thinking about which of those two strategies to use. You could be totally cynical about it and say, your job as a lawyer, in a way, is whenever, it's, whenever your client it looks like your client's going to lose because it's a, a concentration world and everything is being put on your client, you could go to court and say, oh, I have a better idea. We should use distribution like they do over there. And the opposite. You know, maybe that's true, that people are always arguing that the grass is greener on the other side. But no, I think there's some patterns to it, as you'll see in a few uh, moments. Uh, where I'm going to wind up I, can you believe this is still the introduction? Where I'm going to wind up is I'm going to try to show or convince you that because of technological change, the government is a bigger and bigger player in law. That might seem obvious uh, to some of you. Uh, and that there's a good reason for it. And that government is by its nature open to concentration strategies. Look, when we say the government should solve a problem, that itself is a kind of concentration approach, throwing all the onus on the government. Although, of course, you can see the punchline, the government is free to turn around and outsource it and try to come up with distribution strategies. So that's the pattern we're going to see, how law evolves, then how people come to rely on the government, and then how the government very rarely decides to solve the problem itself, but turns around and spreads out the liability. And how does it do that and why? Uh, markets, government, and, and so forth. Okay. Uh, I should have just pointed out while I was at it, since the greatest Chicago idea ever was probably the Coase theorem, I should just point out, notice what was clever in torts about the concentration strategy and the distribution strategy. I'd feel a little better now if people, especially on the podcast, would nod their heads if they understand what I mean now by concentration and distribution. Okay, so I'll proceed. Uh, I want to point out that both of those are kind of cool in that if you believe in the Coase theorem, and, and we all do, <laughs> that actually uh, they're both forgiving strategies. I mean, law can get it wrong, right? Law can decide, oh, Honda, you should be responsible for everything that goes wrong. If it turns out, actually, that Honda didn't do anything wrong and is not really very good at contracting with other parties, it doesn't really. maybe it all turns out not to be about the company that made the airbags, but it's really about the way dealers and gas stations all over the world are maintaining cars and it's screwing up the way the airbag works. You know, fine. Well, fine. Then Honda will pay a lot of bills. They'll see they're not any good at preventing the error. Honda will then figure out, oh, it's really the gas stations that have got to do it. And then it'll come up with a different way of making cars. uh, Or it'll seal the units. Or it'll start contracting with gas stations about how to repair it. Or it'll sell you the car and say you can only get it repaired in a certain place. In other words, the coast theorem, or the ability to bargain around the rule is very forgiving. It means if we get it wrong by putting all the burden on Honda, you know, fine. Honda can figure that out and turn the concentration strategy into a distribution strategy by contract. Similarly, the other way around. If we use comparative negligence of so some other regimes, say to clean up a river, an example we'll come back to and we hold all the factories responsible, and it turns out that's a dumb strategy. The only way to control the river is to build the dam and do this and do that. You know, fine. I guess eventually... The factories will go out of business, or so one of them will bargain with the others, and somebody will buy them all out and build the dam. You know, you could get around that rule too. There's always kind of a safety valve of private people turning concentration into distribution, or distribution into concentration, and uh, so forth. So um, think about property, uh, for example, just to show you that this is not only about torts. Now, I'm tempted to say, before we turn to property, so which do you like better, concentration or distribution? But I don't even know what that would mean. I, I think that just by thinking about the question we sent, one attractive thing about thinking of the world of law this way is that they both comport with our moral intuitions about how the world works and should work. You know, if you say to somebody, imagine we brought in here people who had never been to law school, you know, our parents. We brought them all in here and we said, I described the concentration strategy of holding Honda responsible. And then I said, what do you think? I think a lot of people would think, yeah, that's not a bad idea. That... That sounds like a morally good idea. Pick one big player, hold it responsible, and hope it can figure things out. On the other hand, if we sell the comparative negligence strategy, well, oh, we're not sure how the river got so dirty. Isn't it a tragedy? Look at the dead fish. I mean, we would make them feel bad. And then we would say, oh, but if you recycled a little bit and you had a better factory, and, you know, let's hold everybody a little responsible. We're all in this together in the teamwork Again, most of these people who had never gone to law school would tears would come a little bit, and they would say, <laughs> "Oh yes, yes." They would say that's really good point. So each strategy is morally appealing, which I think is why they survive. They're not just efficiently possible. You know, they don't just make the world work, but they also sort of fit people's moral reactions. Though rarely would the person say, "Wait a minute, you're fooling me here. You're getting me sympathetic to the teamwork thing." But sometimes I think General Motors should pay for everything. You know. The tension is not obvious since they're both morally appealing. Well, think about property. You know, half the modern world of law and economics, not not my part, but half the modern world is explained by you come to law school, you take your first property course, and the professor uh, convinces you that fee simple ownership, the simple ownership of property, was the greatest invention on earth. You know, that was the most important single thing human beings have ever done. Why? Well, look, you're a farmer. If you own your acre of land, you decide when to harvest it. You decide it's worth it for you to plant seeds. It's worth it for you to do this and that. And if anybody could just come along and pick things when they were ripe, then everybody, everything would fall apart. Nobody would have any sense of ownership. They, wouldn't lose, they would lose their incentive. We really build up this world that uh, simple ownership of property is the greatest thing in the world. That person internalizes everything about that acre and figures out when to keep trespassers off, when to do this, when to do, do that. You know, it is kind of attractive. And as we know, civilizations that have tried not to have ownership have struggled a little bit, though not always. Some of them have thrived. But it's cool to like ownership. So I'll go along with it uh, for a while. Uh, so we're, you could think of that as a concentration strategy. Law and property is decided, think about somebody building a big building, it's decided that a single developer is really good at figuring out all the rules, then putting up a 100-story building, and then figuring out, ooh, let's have commercial on the bottom and a hotel there, and then apartments on the top 70 floors, and we'll do this and we'll do that, and we'll have separate entrances for poor people because that'll be good, and we'll do this. (laughs) You know, the developer has an incentive to figure it all out in order to maximize the value of the building, as we like to say in Hyde Park. And it probably works pretty well. It's a very good concentration strategy because there is somebody, people who are professional developers, who can figure out how to make this unit of land uh, be most valuable. But it devolves quickly. It's very rare then to have a developer, if we come back 10 years later and we look, it's very rare for the developer to be running the whole building. Usually, the developer will then sell off condominiums sell off rights, maybe even sell off... Par- that is, after a while, once it becomes clear that for the value to stay high, people have to take good care of their apartments, they have to do this, they have to do that, they have to not trash the elevator, after a while, it seems oh, actually, maybe we should subdivide the building and give people ownership to Unit 2701. Maybe that'll make that person care more about the value of that unit. And there are all sorts of subdivisions going on. So very often, even within private property... Large-scale concentration morphs, or whatever the right word to use, transforms itself, sometimes by private contracts, sometimes by the help of law, into something more of a distribution strategy. The law might really speed that along. For example, if the developer is subject to rent control suddenly, then the developer might think, ooh, now I can't raise rents on the building Now I really will accelerate the move to condo ownership or something in order to get around the... You know, just because we see a building in a certain form of ownership doesn't mean it was natural. Again, the evolution could have come because of legal pressure, political pressure, and the like. But it's very rare to see large-scale concentration continue in the property forever. Often one devolves into the other, or the other way around. It might be that we have distribution that occasionally turns into concentration. Let's start bringing the government into this, or we're going to run out of time. You know, maybe the easiest way to do this is to still think about pollution or some other big negative externality problem, as we call it in our fancy way. Though I I really think you could do this with almost anything uh, government uh, tackles. So how does the government handle that? You know, it's got a messy planet, a messy country, messy rivers and air. What does it do? suddenly this political pressure. The go- people say to the government, you know, we want you to clean up the air. Uh, or uh, political entrepreneurs come and say, well, you know, the river's pretty dirty, and elect me, and I will make it clean so your children can fish in it again. So through one means or another, the government is given this problem to solve. And what does the government do? So it's concentration by political maneuvering. Then the government has to solve it. It's not an easy task. You know, one possibility is that the government sticks with its power, goes with a super concentration approach. It might command and control the whole river basin. It might say, from now on, you can only fish at these hours. Your factory has to close down. Yours can only dump this amount of stuff. You can do this. You can do that. Nobody can do this within five miles of the water basin. <laughs> I mean, the government might, with concentrated ownership, ownership of the legal rules, that is, really tell everybody exactly what to do. It, and, you know, usually it'll do... An, Have an agency do that so it'll seem a little bit more democratic. There'll be hearings and all that sort of thing. You know, sometimes the government outsources a little bit. It might try some rules. It might say, well, we're going to start taxing pollution in the river at a certain amount per effluent charge. We're going to measure mercury coming out of your factory. You know, a little bit of outsourcing. We'll set a price, in other words, for one of the things dirtying the river up. And the more of that stuff you put in the river, the more you'll pay... (laughs) And then you can decide how to make your factory. If you still want to use a lot of mercury, okay, that's your decision. If you want to cut down on the mercury to reduce your fines, that's okay. And I would call that the government using a little bit of distribution, right? Of course, if the government purely uses tort law in a kind of comparative negligence way, that's an extreme distribution strategy. What's interesting is that uh, no government does that. You know, once the government is told to solve the problem, once it feels that political pressure, It might use a little bit of torts. But basically, you know, something like the EPA gets involved, and local senators get involved, and the state gets involved. And there's a lot more command and control and concentration uh, kind of uh, strategy. Roads are very much the same thing. You know, once upon a time, private people, when I say once upon a time, I've learned that you probably think that means when I was in law school. But no, by once upon a time here, I'll say in days of yore, when I mean, like, really far back. In days of yore, the government had nothing to do with roads. You know, roads were spontaneous. People would tramp over the woods and create a trail. The trail would get a little wider. Wagons would go over it. And then once in a while, some private guy would come along and smooth out the road or put gravel in. Gravel's a pretty modern thing. And eventually maybe even pave the road and set up a toll collection booth. I mean, I probably know this from some American or Russian history. I mean, the history of roads is actually kind of interesting. And then, you know, it was a network of roads. And people would build the roads and add roads and have monopolies on the roads and be battles over. But, you know, it, a lot of reasons why this is not a very efficient uh, thing to do. For starters, it's expensive to stand there and collect tolls all the time. You know, it's like a boring job. And uh, it's not so easy. And you, you can't just have one toll booth, because after all... You want to charge people more for a heavy truck if they use the road for many miles, than one mile. and You know, eventually, in country after country, with a few exceptions, you know, here and there, there's a privately held highway or something. But more or less, this was centralized. And the government took over road building, road maintenance, and charging for the roads. In some places by toll, in some places through gas tax, in some places thus through general revenue, in some places through warfare, you know, the military would build the roads or something. But roads, I, mean, I think it's now we would say the road problem is almost entirely concentrated. Now notice what I mean by the road problem. It's not, after all, it's not just a matter of building a road. It's a matter of, well, how are people going to drive on the road? Are they going to kill each other? Are they going to drive too fast, too slow? Again, I mean, I teach torts, so I like to say there's a tort system out there, but it's a very small part of the picture, most of it is centralized. It's concentration, not distribution. The government sets the speed limit on the road. The government, you know, d- decides how wide the road will be. It uses the material. It decides how heavy a truck can be on the road. It puts guardrails on the road. I mean, it just does thing after thing after thing that more or less controls. It has drunk driving rules. It enforces them. More or less, 99% of the picture has become concentration. A single party, a government is deciding when and where to build the road, how you can drive on the road and all that, and then, yeah, if you veer your car to the right and you crash into me, the government wants to know about it, and I can go to court and get some money from you. But that's the least of it. I mean, that's controlling only a very, very small part of accidents. Most of the work is being done by traffic rules and by drunk driving rules, and mostly by the safety of the road. The best predictor of deaths on highways is the quality of the highway, not the speed limit or the drinking rules even or anything uh, like that. Now overall, what, what's going on here? Why, I, and we could do this in a hundred areas. What's going on here? Like why is it that in area after area there's more and more concentration? Why is it that there's more and more government? Why, why are governments so much bigger now than they were a while ago? That's a big question. Uh, you know, it won't do. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, that's because politicians like more power. Eh, they always liked power. Uh, I'm reading this uh, really good book now about the history of Islam, and you get this feeling, you know, you're so used to the Western Europe, North America growth because that's what we study in school, and you realize, wow, it's like the same book just changed the names. The same pattern and peaks and troughs and military and centralization and You know, like, wow, all over the world, the human experience is that the rulers like a lot of power, but their idea of a lot of power in 1600 was tiny compared to the power that governments have today. Why? Well, the answer is sort of obvious. Controlling things, command and control, and even outsourcing, really requires a lot of technology. Like, just knowing what's going on a thousand miles away from where the emperor sits requires... I mean, not quite smartphones, but almost. I mean, you've got to have a lot of information. You either need newspapers or spies or electronic stuff. You've got to have up-to-date news. I mean, who would want to control the bazaar a thousand miles away if you had no idea what was going on there? So you need a lot, a lot of information, and you need the tools to process the information. Then you need some tool to send your agents there to enforce your rules, promulgate and enforce your rules. And then you need some information over there about what your agent is doing so if the agent disobeys you, you can kill him or whatever you're supposed to do when agents disobey you. I'm sorry. Monitor the agent, I think is the <laughs> polite way uh, to say it. You know, this is not an easy task and basically no government's been able to do it until modern times. They would get bigger, bigger, bigger and then they Roman Empire, Ottoman Empire, you pick it. They'd get bigger and bigger bigger, and then collapse their own way because they really couldn't control the outer things. But that's no longer true. The technology of taking in the information, processing it, comparing, pitting local officials against one another, all the things that modern governments do, they all favor large-scale governments now. This is a real, you know, Monte Carlo is like a thing of the past. Switzerland, you know, there's no new Switzerland out there. Like, it's not really, it doesn't really appeal to people. The problems are bigger than one small area. And essentially, you get a good governor, you get a good ruler, why should she just control one small, pathetic place? Let's put her in charge of more. She can process the information and so forth. And that, that clearly is the trend of the world. That's not our subject today, but we can see that. There are lots of reasons why governments have grown. Maybe the best way to think about it is, if I said to you, governments grew because of war-making, you would say, oh, that makes sense. You know, if you need protection of war... You're better off with the central government, especially as weapons get bigger. You got big cannons. You know what's Chicago going to do with its own cannons? You know you're not going to use them very often. So much better for Cook County and then Illinois and then Washington to control the cannons. You know it's more efficient. You can move the cannons around with F-15s. You know even more so. So, you know central government. It's a famous political science movement. You know what's war good for? Is the name of one of these recent books, and the answer is uh, war is good at creating big central governments, which in turn, over time, way keep down the crime rate, basically. You know, if you think about the death rate from civil war and killing your brother and all that sort of thing, you know, central governments have been very, very good. We think of them as authoritarian monsters, but really they're much, much better at keeping down death rates than lots and lots of little battling uh, governments. And so as soon as you see how it works for the military, you can begin to see, oh, yeah... That's the same thing that happens with pollution and with torts and with most things. You know, the government makes believe that there's Montana and Illinois and Indiana, just to take the American example. But let's not fool ourselves. Basically, Congress can preempt almost anything it wants. Oh, I'm sorry. Some of you are 3Ls. You think there's a state right to do things. Yes, it's like a really big domain. I mean, probably Congress could not force Illinois to change its capital city. Fine. Like, that's... (laughs) I took five con law courses in law school. That's basically what I got out of it. (laughs) But, you know, there are these small, tiny areas that really are devolved to the states. Mostly, the center decides what to do, and then it might deploy the states to compete with one another, to experiment. I mean, China and India do this much more than we do, but, you know, people get the idea. But it's basically concentration... With selective distribution, if you think it's a good good idea. So the technological change, let's call that the information-gathering age, has really helped these uh, central governments. I'm going to skip one topic in order to do one last topic. I'll just skip it. I plan to skip it all along, but I just will mention it for those of you looking for other applications. You know, think about uh, innovation policy. You know, once upon a time it was distribution. Let's have a patent system and... Almost every country has that. Patent system is really the government's way of saying, we're going to set up these property rights that are distributed. You go invent something, you'll get ownership. You can have a monopoly, blah, 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 blah. You know, that's charmingly small these days, and getting smaller, I think. You know, where does most innovation come from now? It comes from government contracts. You know, yes, you innovate, but you innovate because you know that if you develop a better vaccine, the government's going to buy, you know, 7 million units of it. And the government will specify what kind of vaccines it wants. The government gives out prizes. You know, we make believe we're a private university. What, are you kidding? I mean, half the people here have federal loans. Across the Midway, they would close tomorrow without federal money. Federal money financing the hospital, financing science, grants. You do a good job, you get more grants. You know, it's tremendous central ownership with giving out prizes and incentives. I mean, it's distribution. It's like a comparative negligence system, but it's done with little prizes. you know, Carrots rather than sticks, uh, you might say. Very, very much centrally controlled with a central... You know, Illinois barely gives out any innovation money. It all comes from Washington, and there's much better information about medical innovations and road innovations and other things. So there's a definite movement there as well, from concentration to distribution. I'm sorry, from distribution to concentration. And I suspect we'll see even more of it uh, in the future. So climate change was going to be my um, last example, just to think about what might, we might expect in the future, and then I'll open it up for questions. Climate change is a good example of everything I'm talking about. Because, uh, so there's a problem. Oh, I'm sorry. Some of you are skeptics. Uh, and you think, oh... Prove that we have human-made climate change. Okay. Um, Maybe we don't. You know, that's fine. But uh, there's a chance. There's even a probability that we have a problem. So prove that Ebola will come here. You know, prove that we'll go to war with somebody. You know, generally we call on government to do things when we think there's some chance of being annihilated. Like, we care. (laughs) Well, okay. So no one can be that big a skeptic. Like, it's possible that climate change is a problem. You know, maybe. And so as soon as you think that, you know, what's the reaction? Notice how distribution is, has disappeared. No one thinks, you know, the right solution to climate change, do nothing. But remind people of the tort system. Remind people <laughs> that if the sea continues to rise, and if the East Coast is annihilated, we will then go to all the people who didn't recycle and make them pay their share of the problem. <laughs> I don't think so. I mean, that is our information-gathering ability is not that good, right? I guess if the information technology was so fantastic, then the rule really wouldn't matter. You could use concentration, distribute, you could use whatever you want because we would always be able to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. But realistically, we want to know big things. Should we build a seawall, and if so, where? Should we do a wholesale shift to solar power, and if so, what's the right rate of innovation given that lots and lots of solar panels or wind turbines will probably be inefficient for 10 or 20 years until they get better? These are really, really big questions, and in our time, given the information technology change, we say, understandably, to the central government, look, I'll sound like a University of Chicago person now, if you'll excuse me. We say, look, we don't really trust you. We kind of hate a lot of things you do. We give you small things to do, and you don't do them very well. And then, when it's too late, you keep funding them anyway. But we don't have a choice but to go to you. You are like the concentrated problem solver. So even though you haven't shown us that you can even deliver mail, we would (laughs) like... We would like... Back when we cared about mail... We would like you now to be in charge of climate change. I mean, that's how strongly we feel that we don't really have a choice. We need some sort of concentration strategy because the problem is big. It probably involves treaties with other countries. And it involves things like building seawalls. These are really, really big projects. Now, I warned you at the beginning that I was going to say, I'm not sure any of this is good. If we do things like, you know, $100 billion seawalls, we will always worry, uh, you know, do you really think they put the seawall in the right place? Or did they put it there because it was that donor's cousin who owned the seawall? I mean, we'll always worry whether the government is really adopting the right strategy and doing it in the right place. Or is it really just a lot of politics, and what we call rent-seeking and public choice? I mean, we're always nervous that even if we're right to use a concentration strategy... That, oh boy, the on the ground, when it's done, it's not even second best. It's like the eighth best seawall. I mean, like Navy bases. I'm pretty sure that we should have a Navy. I mean, not everybody is. I I understand. I've been to Costa Rica. They have their army. They're very proud of it and all that. But I feel like, no, I'm serious. I feel like most of us would think, you know, having a Navy is pretty good. But if I said to you, do you think our four biggest Navy bases are in the perfect locations? I think that would be a joke. No, everybody would say, of course not. You know why? The big one in Norfolk, Virginia, when Senator Warner was the chairman of the Armed Services Committee, he made sure that a in California, you know, the president needed votes, and so they, uh, And then we have pretty good stories about where, I'm, you know, as for that big Navy base in Oklahoma, I mean, are you kidding me? <laughs> you know, that's not one of the four biggest, but we understand that there's a lot of politics and a lot of inefficiency and a lot of, like, it's not great. But we think, by and large, we don't have a choice. There's concentration rather than distribution. Concentration is the right way to run the Navy. We just have to hope that some political checks will keep us from being bad. And again, other countries screwing up also, so it's a level playing field, we think to ourselves. Just wasting a lot of money. Okay. Well, the same thing with climate change. I don't mean they're going to build the perfect seawalls in the perfect spots, and they might do seawalls when they should have done something else because of political donors. But by and large we feel forced, we inevitably will evolve towards a concentrated solution rather than a distributed solution. Now, the government is free to distribute. The government could say, we will build the seawalls and we will do this and we will do that, but you will be responsible for this and there will be a small amount of Superfund liability for dumping stuff in rivers. I mean, it can use some distribution strategy. could even use a private law system. It could certainly use markets. It could say we're going to impose a carbon tax, and that's a very distributive reaction. Let everybody decide what they want to use their carbon on. I mean, I'm a big fan of that. But again, that's a small part, and it's the central planner that is going to decide when to use the carbon tax. That's uh, really the, the prediction. That it's inevitable, and it's because of the technology of more and more information gathering and whom we would trust with it and the ability to carry it out. Now, you might say, if I were to ask a question, and I stop, which will be momentarily, I would say, well, wait a minute, as there's better and better information, doesn't that mean that markets should also work better? So why doesn't better information mean that there's more possibility for market solution? And the answer, I think, is, well, because for these kinds of problems, uh, either the political players, the citizens, are unwilling to wait for more. For example, the government could get completely out of the business of climate change and education, to pick those two. And the government could say, look, we don't want to be blamed when it goes wrong. So you know what? Here's our policy. Elect me. I will do nothing. At first, that would really startle people. Then come and say, look, here's what's going to happen. You're going to watch the deserts grow and the seawater rise, and then you're going to panic, and then you're going to start resorting to markets. Then you're going to, well, well why? There'll be all this collective action problem and free riders that won't work. Then you'll just need government more. Okay, education maybe. You know what? We're gonna let your schools fall apart. And then you'll all start going to private schools and the private schools will compete and they'll eventually get better and better. And that yeah, that might work fine. But that's probably a 30, 40, 50 year process of all this capital falling into disuse and all you know, that's like the story of Pittsburgh. You know, it took a long time to fall, rise, have everybody move to Scottsdale, come back. I mean, that's, that's not going to work on a large scale over and over and over again. And so I think the information age is really the reason why we've moved to a concentration strategy, other things uh, being equal. So that's a good place to stop uh, because that leaves us uh, plenty of time for questions. My experience is that if you don't ask a question early, then afterwards you'll feel bad that you didn't get a choice. You didn't get a chance. Please. Please. Well, either thank you or the sarcasm was great. (laughs) So one of the the ideas about free market economics, if I understand it correctly, is that why centralization oftentimes fails is because of fatal conceit of trying to control too much information. The rate at which information technology has increased has only meant that the amount of information has increased exponentially, and even more than the amount of information carried. So is it possible that as information grows, that it's going to, the amount of it, the sheer quantity of it is going to grow faster than centralization can keep up with that and lead to more distribution later on? Yeah, it's uh, traditional to repeat the question for the podcast. You you spoke nice and loudly, but I feel like I should, no, no need to repeat it, because it was such a bad question or, oh. (laughs) It It was, of course, an excellent question, and I'm sure everybody heard it. Okay, so I think I have a good answer to it, but I I again want to emphasize this is not a normative talk. I am not celebrating the growth of central government. It happens that I'm a smaller government guy. But that's not the point, right? I mean, I'm not giving a normative talk about how I wish the world would evolve. I'm giving a talk about how the world has evolved and how I think it'll evolve in the future. Okay, so now to answer the, the question... Well, it's true, of course, that there is and will be information overload. You know, think even of national security and the government's taking all this metadata. And uh, What can the government do with it all? So now it knows all the emails I've sent and all the emails are coming in. It's got all this information. You know, you know, I guess it can look through that and try to find keywords, but it's totally overloaded with information. But what's the alternative? I mean, the problem is a distribution strategy will just leave 100 little players also overloaded with information. So when the government looks bad because it's overloaded, look, oh, we didn't prevent 9-11. Can you believe it? We entrusted you with all this information and you didn't... Do it. You know, a good government would say, you've got to understand the information overload problem. We did the best we could or not because of this. Do you really think you would have been better off if Burns Security would have been in charge of New York? Now, sometimes the answer will be yes. I think that's what's happened in education. That's our universities right now is the private sector is performing really pretty well, aside from my comment about the money really coming from the federal government, but it's certainly distributed. University of Chicago really is not the Ohio State. The University of Chicago really decides a lot of things on its own, and I don't mean that as anything wrong with Ohio State. Well, uh, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we do get to decide things without looking to the Illinois or federal legislature, but the information overload problem doesn't go away uh, if you distribute So the only reason it would go away is if somehow all those factories on the river really knew more than the government. But that's exactly my point, is that 50 years ago, I think comparative negligence was brilliant for the river because each factory owner really knew much better what her costs were of dumping elsewhere, what other materials she could use in the factory. It was very, very hard for the government or any plaintiff to get that information. So when information is hard to get... The distribution strategy is way superior to something like, well, wait a minute. Explain again this link between information and concentration. Because after all, it's true that information sometimes concentrates, like maybe the federal government, but Amazon is a really good example. But, and again, of course, Amazon can outsource to little vendors, but that's part of my plan. Uh, but at the same time, it's also empowered a typical driver to become an Uber driver or uh, a person at their house to rent out their spare room through Airbnb. So we find, of course, that information liberates. Information allows very distributed sources uh, to do job sharing, to do asset sharing. In the case of Uber, uh, you can get services through, you know, tutoring now is a big online business. It can be done Skype and all that. And, you know, so in a way, there's a lot of distribution because of better and better uh, information. So um, I don't disagree at all. That's a great, great thing. I mean, the sharing economy is a big part of our future. But that's why I was very careful in my title. I mean, you might not like this answer, but that's why I was very careful in my title to say, how does law work? I'm not asking how the world works or how markets work. How markets work, I think, smaller and smaller for that reason. That it's much easier... To share, or be that. to be sure we need a central clearinghouse. And, you know, but I think Amazon actually is the rise of mom-and-pop stores. I think the real story of Amazon, yeah, it's a big intermediary. But the amazing thing about Amazon is that anybody wants to set up a little company now, they don't need to ship their product. They, don't, you know, they can do something. You know, They can make Halloween costumes in their house. And then they make a deal with Amazon and they once in a while deliver the costumes to a local Amazon facility. And in the local facility, Amazon packages what they want, wraps it, sends it out with their return address. I mean, Amazon does everything. You don't have to really set up a whole company. You can use your comparative advantage and specialize in what isn't amazing. I mean, you can... So it's fantastic for people who are good at making Halloween costumes. And actually, the information, the, the gathering of information has made it possible to hide all this from people who don't want to see it, or to show all this to people like us that think this is so cool, that you can use Amazon to buy a Halloween costume from the kid next door. It's fantastic. (laughs) So what that it travels a thousand miles on the way and uses... I mean, it's fun. And and I'm completely with you. So that's how the world works, but that's not how law works, because for law to regulate that, the concentration... I could see why people aren't raising their hand because those were two great questions and almost just as a statistical matter, the next question is really not gonna be very good. (laughs) Don't be shy, you'll do me a big favor uh, if we have two or three more questions. Nah, no. Thank you, Rachel. Uh, So it seems to me that concentration distribution is like somewhat analogous to private and, and public. And in, and also that it brings into question of access. So, for instance, educate your point about education and the fact that maybe we think that private educators are doing a better job of it, but are they? Do they have the capacity to provide access in the way that um, a distrib- or that a mm-hmm. concentrated system, i.e., a public system, would work? Okay, so that's interesting. I mean, education was really I think that I, it was a quick example. Maybe I should have thought it through more. But I was analogizing it to climate change in the sense that uh, if education really flopped, I thought people would look more and more to the central government for a solution, and then the central government would have to figure out what to do. Right now, it's more distributed in the sense that local school boards and states uh, run things, and they think it's charming, and of course, they don't want to give up control. So it will require some sort of crisis or something uh, in order for them to give up control. And how do we know the federal government will do better? It can't deliver the mail, and the whole thing, but again, I'm not normative. I'm just predicting. Okay, Uh, And so your question is, well, well, where does the access uh, fit in here? I don't think the access is an issue. I think access will also be concentrated. So let me explain uh, why I think that's uh, true. So first of all, imagine that we redid education. It could be distributed yet more than it is now. It might be that the central planner will decide political pressure will cause the central planner. Again, I want to emphasize the interest groups. It'll cause the central planner to think, you know, what's with this no child left behind by Illinois or by Ohio? We need to have a no child left behind by the school or the school district. So from now on, the rule is that if your school district doesn't advance reading by a certain amount, then your district loses the right. You all lose your jobs. And then the government sends in somebody to run it. That'll really scare them. You know, you can no longer hire your cousin to be the building engineer, you know. So it might be that the central government would use yet more distribution. It might be that it'll be many, many, many units. Or maybe it'll be completely privatized. And the government will say, we like the way some private schools are working, not others. So from now on, we're going to tie loans and grants to success. And if you fail, you won't get our money. If you succeed, you'll get our money. And of course, they'll be hard to measure, and they might screw it up, and there'll be a lot of rent-seeking, and maybe... They'll gear the exam secretly to people who use the textbook written by the first lady's cousin. I mean, all sorts of things can go wrong. My claim isn't that it'll be better. My claim is only that's what's going to happen, That they'll be the central thing. And then, through political pressure and interest groups, either way, either good reasons or bad reasons, the government is likely to say, but we also want you to have special education for people who don't speak English well, or we want you to be especially good to people who have disabilities. So, you know, we usually give you $3,950 a student whose reading level you raise. We'll give you $8,000 for everybody like that that you raise. No, they can make access much, much better through concentrated and giving out prizes, uh, if you will. So I don't know, I I don't even know how to predict whether access is better with a concentration approach or the initial distribution or concentration followed by distribution It's tough. I mean, the cynic in me, or skeptic in me, wants to say, well, it really depends on at what level you think those interest groups operate better. The total optimist, if you think of it all about information, is probably concentration would improve those things, because the local school board, now they they don't have much experience. Oh, now they get one kid with that disability, and they hire a lawyer, and the lawyer tells them, well, this is how it's being done over there. Whereas a central planner with information probably would be much better at knowing how to deal with that. So that doesn't, I don't think that, that worries me. I think if I were an access guy, I would either give those people super vouchers if I wanted to distribute, or if I were they, I would be lobbying for, uh, for concentration. I mean, just in favor of that, I'll just point out, uh, you know, if we look around the world, the, the usual modern method is uh, globalized. You know, gee, how are we doing compared to other countries? And then, if we're doing well, we say, well, that's America for you. And if we're doing badly, we say, well, they don't have free speech or something. <laughs> um, but for those of us willing to be a little bit more open minded, I mean, if you look at countries where education of the, not the upper class, but if you look, if what you're trying to do is figure out, well, who's able to educate, let's even leave aside people with the most serious problems, you know, who's able to educate the 50th percentile, the best. You know, we're better than the charts, say, because the charts are taking everything into account. But we're, you know, bad by American standards. You know, we like finishing in the top one. Top five would be okay. Top 15 maybe would be manageable for Greco-Roman wrestling or something. <laughs> but, but for math, you know, wow. 27, and maybe we would be 15 or 17 if we measured it the way we would like to measure it. You know, that's really pretty bad. So now let's just go look at the countries that seem to do it really well. All of them have moved to concentration. You know, all of them. So I think that might tell it much even more than healthcare. So I think that might tell us, wow, if we're really honest about it and we look around, we would see that concentration is really the wave of the future. We're just spending a lot, a lot, a lot of money and heartache and denying act, true access to a lot of people all so we can make believe it's more democratic, to have a little local school board. You know, I I don't know. To me, it just seems like, let's just admit it. Our system isn't doing very well. And the place where our system is outperforming everybody else, like this law school, we're distributing in a completely different way. It's not a local school board that's running it. It's intense competition with highly mobile students and admitted student weekends and freaking free food at every lunch. (laughs) You know, I mean, it's like competition at its best. (laughs) One more, only if there is. Otherwise, I'm gonna say goodbye. All right, so let's. Oh, please, I'd love. I'd love one last question, okay. then I could give a re- a resounding answer and end on an up note. Okay, great. And, and so, something that I think I'm maybe getting from your talk, and I just want to see if this is if this is accurate, is that um, do you think that we we want to move there, like concentration? We want to move towards concentration where we can, probably because there's you know. Efficiency gains, but we're limited by our information and we're limited by the outreach. Is that is that what's happening? And so like we're no and no. Okay. But tell me that's not what you got out of my talk. No, just I, I guess. I... Okay, no. And let me explain the no and no. No uh, to the second part. The second part's easier. No. No to the second part. Because, no, I'm arguing the opposite in a way, that the technological changes, especially information broadly construed, including travel and a lot of other things, that the information technology change has made uh, concentration as efficient and sometimes more efficient than distribution. That is, it used to be that letting each factory, you know, figuring out some rule that would cause each factory to minimize pollution or something was about the only way you could go. Now that we have much more information, We actually have a choice. We can devolve to them, or we can have central planning. We have choices. So information has made concentration more plausible, just like it made central military not only more plausible, but in that case, dominant. At the same time, no to the first part because, uh, so again, the second part is, information has made concentration possible, if not superior sometimes. But as to the first part, no. I don't want to say it's superior. In fact, I am trying to say at every point, be careful. Yes, the government probably has the information to figure out seawalls and build them in the right place. But I, I have no confidence that the government's building them in the right place any more than they're building the naval base in the right place. There are interest group pressures. It's, because as soon as I put it there, rather than in a market, there are other things going on, like politics and who's friendly with whom and cousins and electoral votes. And so I don't know that it's a good thing. I just know that, in principle, I might have liked the post office, to become Airbnb, and that's not what's happened. Okay, So I guess not, not we want it like it's better, but just that there's, is there pressure towards... Right. We don't know that it's better. I don't think we can know. Any more than we can know, I'll give an extreme example and stop. Any more than we can know that uh, people owning land in Virginia now, in these plots, is efficient. Really? How, how can we know it's efficient? Just because Richard Epstein says so? I mean, think about where it came from. It didn't come from some spontaneous order. It came from King George giving his cousin a lot of land. Total concentration by fiat and interest group pressure, and the guy then starts running out of money and sells off pieces. and da, da. I mean, could we really believe that, wow, magically, this has evolved to the most efficient thing? Any more than we could think that patent and copyright laws we know today is efficient. Yes, we like property rights, but we can see all the interest group pressures inside it. Oh, more years for Mickey Mouse, few years for this, more money for drug thing. Who knows? We just know that there were pressures to centralize, and then it's a combination of all the things that are good and all the interest group things that could be good and could be bad. Thank you very, very much. This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu.